0: We love you, we uh, lift up our praises to you this morning, we acknowledge who you are and and what you've done and and what you are doing uh, in our hearts and our lives and the world around us. We we pray that you would speak to us this morning, we pray that your spirit would come and stir in our hearts that that as we read the scriptures that he would um, illuminate to us your truths and that he would um, so transform us that we would be reshaped and further molded into your image, that we would look more like you and, and be better equipped to carry out the ministry that you have prepared for us in the world around us. We pray that you would uh, move powerfully, that you would show up this morning and, and speak to us. We love you. Let's hear something we pray. Amen. All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, welcome to uh, pick up a black card back under seat around you. Acts chapter 23 is where we'll be this morning. We are working our way through the book of Acts and are in our kind of home stretch here as we finish up uh, before Easter hits us. So Acts chapter 23, we're actually going to do something kind of new and kind of exciting this morning. Okay, we're gonna do two chapters and one Sunday. So we're gonna go for uh, 23 and 24, thinking big here at FCQ, all right, we'll see what we can do this morning. It somehow took us over a year to figure out that you can go faster if you go more than one chapter at a time. Um, slow learner, but we're there uh, in Acts chapter 23. Uh, and this is kind of a part two of a message I gave back in November. So so what we'll see here in these two chapters, and the reason I put them together is because I felt that kind of was continuing on to the same theme, and so I thought we could um, do it all together this morning. In November, uh, November 4th, in Acts chapter 17, uh, I gave a message called The Politics of the Church, okay? And this was right before the elections happened, okay, on, on November 6th. And and it was kind of, I think, one of the more prophetic messages I've ever given. Uh, and, and if you remember back, it's online if you, if you weren't there for that. The basic gist of it was it was just a plea for you and I to be Christians before we're Americans, okay? With all the craziness that was happening with the elections, that before I'm a Republican or before I'm a Democrat, before I'm a Libertarian, before I'm an Independent— form a communist, okay, whatever it is, <laughs> I would be a Christian before that, so that we would rally around our allegiance to, to Jesus. And so kind of the gist of that was how are Christians to engage in the world during an election with so much, I mean, I don't know if you can remember, it's over us, but there's so much craziness happening around us. Um, and so today we're going to see Paul constantly in front of the authorities of his day, both Jewish and Roman. So the question is similar but different. This morning I want to ask and look at, how is it the United States Christians engage with those who are elected? Okay, so the election's over, but we still have a government. Okay, for some of us it was bad news, for others of us it was good news. Okay, so on November 4th, we had Obama and we had Mitt Romney. Here's Americans, these are our two options. Obama won the election, okay, for better or for worse. However, you feel about that. Obama is now our governing authority, our president for a second term. Some of my more Republican friends, okay, think there must have been this huge conspiracy, mass voter fraud, the Mayans were probably involved somewhere, all right. But Obama won the election, okay. How are you and I to to engage? And and if I'm being honest, just like kind of what I talked about with the election, I think Christians do a poor job of this. I think we did a poor job on the whole when it came time to to do election season, and I think we do a pretty poor job engaging with our elected officials, both whether we like them. Or or don't like them. So uh, today is a pretty big day, okay? Uh, I uh, read an article, actually. They polled Christians to see how many of them, what percentage of them, they thought, thought that God cared about the Super Bowl. Like, what What percentage thought God was really invested in who wins the Super Bowl? And it was an alarmingly high percentage uh, that God was invested in the 49ers Ravens, okay? Um, obviously, the 49ers will win this evening. Uh, but but there's a large number of Americans who thought, again, God's pretty emotionally invested. He cares in the outcome of this football game. And so it's kind of silly. Don't think God's too concern about what football team wins i will say this though as i'm thinking about the super bowl i think god does care about what happens this weekend particularly what's happening in and around the super bowl area in new orleans so this has gotten a lot of press over the past few years but but most people would agree the super bowl okay being one of the biggest events in the world probably the biggest television event in america the super bowl is kind of the biggest hub once a year for sex trafficking and sex slavery, and all those things, prostitution, including children, underage, kind of converge for the past few years at the Super Bowl. And so last year, the Texas State uh, Attorney uh, said that this is probably the biggest event of the year for these things to kind of happen. You've got all these people in one location, and the crowds make it easy to disguise certain things, and the demand goes high with all these these men who, who maybe want to look for immoral type of entertainment during this weekend. They arrested over 100 people last year uh, at the Super Bowl. They've already, from what I saw, already been making arrests in New Orleans um, for people setting things up, getting ready, that kind of thing. So I do think God's very much concerned about that. I, I think that's something that's on God's heart. And I think as Christians, that's something that we should be praying for. I think prayer is one of the ways we influence the world for the kingdom. I think that's something we should be praying for um, this weekend and, and particularly tonight as everyone's in New Orleans uh, for the game. Um, now, one of my favorite authors talks about how sometimes you and I as human beings, when we're confronted with things, we often have this longing for something better or something different. So so when I hear about that kind of stuff happening, okay, at a football game, there's just this longing inside of me for a world where that kind of stuff doesn't happen. For I mean, we might call it justice, right? For a world where right things happen and wrong things aren't allowed. They're, they don't happen. Children aren't hurt, okay? People aren't abused. There aren't these systemic systems of injustice there's this longing and, and the author calls it an echo of a voice it's like we have this voice that that's speaking to us and reminding us of this 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 other world this place where things are right a world put to rights he calls it the echo of a voice and he says human beings typically have three ways to respond to these echoes that we have this these dreams these longings that we have uh particularly for a just world for a world made new a world where things work right the first option, he says, is we call it a dream. And we say, this is just something we've made up. It's a figment of our imagination. And this is kind of the classic atheist response, okay? This doesn't exist, it's not going to exist. Sorry, but we live in a messed up world, okay? That's just how it is. You better get used to it, all right? Or you're in for a long, bumpy ride. So, so one option to say, I mean, you just made that voice up. There's nothing real there. There's nothing substantial to that, that longing. The second option, and this is what more Christians have chosen to do, is to say that the voice is real, and the longing for that world is real, and it's a longing that will be fulfilled in another world, or in an afterlife, and maybe a spiritual place. We, we might call this heaven, okay? And so, yeah, we have this sense that, that that's not allowed, and that's not, shouldn't be allowed, that that's not right, that those kind of things shouldn't happen, and that voice should lead us to think that one day we'll live in a world far away from this world, not like this world, perhaps in the afterlife, in a place called heaven, where those things are fulfilled, those longings come true. But the author says there's this third voice, which is maybe the more Christian voice, or, or third option to deal with this voice. And the third option is this. It's to see the, the voice as not something that we've made up, and not something calling from a long way away. But a voice that has come near to us in Jesus and is being made louder and louder on this earth as it is in heaven. It's an understanding of, of the kingdom of God and God's promise is coming true right now among us on earth again as in heaven. I think far too often we've over spiritualized Jesus, his reign, his kingdom and, and the gospel. And sometimes we make it all about the afterlife. And so all of our hope, all of, all of the things that we long for, right, are coming true in, in a spiritual place away from us and in this place that's, that's only going to be attainable for us after we die in this afterlife. And, and all these things start to crumble when you, you have that as your main hope for the gospel, when you have that as your main kind of fuel for following and loving Jesus. Um, particularly one of them that we've explored in the past is, is your way of doing politics falls apart your way of understanding politics and understanding how the world should operate right now falls apart. I think acts won't let us as we've walked through the book of acts. So, I mean, we're 22 chapters in, it won't let us over spiritualize Jesus and his kingdom. Okay. If you remember way back, Luke uh, wrote the gospel of Luke and he picks up in acts, this idea of the kingdom of God, right? God's reign coming to earth right here around us as it is in heaven, starting way back when 2000 years ago, And in Acts chapter 1, if you remember, Jesus comes to his disciples, he gives them marching orders, and then he ascends. He goes into heaven, right? And sometimes we think about this in kind of our over-spiritualized way, and it's like E.T. going home, okay? It's this space alien, he's going back to where he came from, right? But, But we talked about, you should see and understand Jesus' enthronement after his resurrection as just that, right? He's taking the throne of the world. He's inaugurated into his kingdom, much like, again, we saw President Obama's inauguration real recently. That's the ascension, okay? Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, ruling the entire world. He, he takes his seat at the CEO's desk. Now, I was talking with a group this week about how Jesus is still a human being today. And it was, I mean, it kind of shocked them, something maybe we don't think about all that much, okay? But but the incarnation is not just a 33-year stint by Jesus, Right? I mean, to this day, he's still a human being. Eternally, the second person of the Trinity has become a human being. So I don't know if, I mean, this is speculation on my part. If your resurrected, our glorified bodies will have hearts and blood. I'm assuming they will. And so I'm assuming I'm an okay company saying right now, somewhere in the universe, in a physical location. I mean, glorified body, physical location is Jesus. At the Father's right hand, with blood pumping, with the heart that's working, with brain that's firing off neurons, with the eyes that are seeing things. And Acts would have us understand that's where he is right now, reigning, ruling over the entire creation. The king of all things, in Matthew 28, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The kingdom has been inaugurated, has been started. And then Jesus' first act as president, as king, as the CEO of the universe. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost? He gives the church the spirit. He gives his followers, his people, the spirit of God, power and presence of God himself to equip them to go out and live on mission, to further his kingdom work, to, again, make the place where we live look more like heaven. And Acts, the whole book of Acts from chapter three on is largely written to show you and I, this is what it looks like when Jesus is king. What does it look like? Well, it looks like a community of people. Who are patiently but faithfully following and obeying Christ, being witnesses to his resurrection, to the power of the gospel, and going from town to town and transforming people and communities and places and societies to look and reflect more and more like God's reign. Now, if it's true that Jesus is king and his kingdom is here and growing, there's going to be some some obvious tension between those who still claim to be king. And those who still claim, again, to seek justice in the world. And those who, the governments, who who claim to seek justice but sometimes get involved in unjust things. And and you will see this throughout the book of Acts. We have seen this throughout the book of Acts. And now as Paul comes up against these two different governing authorities, okay, the, the Jewish and the Roman, I want to see how he interacts with them and draw two principles, okay, with how you and I should relate to uh, our governments, with how you and I should relate to our elected officials, with this understanding that Jesus is our true king and his kingdom is a real thing that you and I are called to in today's world. Okay? We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. We'll do some reading, all right? We're going to try to do these two chapters. 23, verse 1. If you remember the story, real quick, okay? Paul has gone to Jerusalem, riot breaks out, Paul gets arrested, then Paul preaches a sermon to all the people who wanted to kill him, and then he's about to get killed again. Okay, so the Roman authorities take him away. And now as we pick it up in chapter 23, he's going to go before the Jewish governing officials. All right, the Jewish government here in Jerusalem. Verse 23, chapter 23, verse 1. Looking intensely at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Pretty good start to his speech. Verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Things got intense pretty fast. (laughs) Are you sitting to judge me, Paul says, according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So Paul's pointing out this kind of hypocrisy, this injustice. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And this, watch this, verse five, very interesting. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil, of a ruler of your people. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. A little vague, general, but okay, it's true. Verse 7. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if an spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks." The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul, again, here starts this riot. All right. He just speaks and riots start. And he, again, is kind of savvy here. He sees attention in the room and picks up on it and uses it to his advantage. So you've got these two Jewish groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they have very different beliefs about God and about God's actions in the world. The Sadducees have very little room. For the afterlife, okay, they have very little room for kind of what you consider more spiritual things in creation. They are kind of meshed with the power structures of the day. So they don't need much interaction from God, right? I mean, if you're in charge, you don't need God to intervene to do much for you. Um, Now, the Pharisees believe in this idea called the resurrection. It's a belief Jesus seems to adopt. He shares that with the Pharisees. Paul shares this with the Pharisees. It's this idea that God is so radically going to judge the world that he's going to redo everything and then resurrect people, some to live with rewards and some to live with punishments. So Paul shares this belief with them. He knows this is a tense issue between the two of them. So he goes, Can I just say something real quick? I'm here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Which is true and not true, okay? He's here because he believes Jesus started the resurrection of the dead. Which the Pharisees would not agree with. But sure, okay, he believes in the resurrection of the dead. He just thinks it happened a little bit differently than the Pharisees thought they would. The Pharisees see an opportunity. They're not in power, but they see an opportunity to, to, to win a theological point, okay? So they start this big old fight, and again, they say, you know what? We, we won't say Jesus resurrected, but what if it was an angel or spirit? That's how they would talk about people before they were resurrected. They have this angelic state or they're the spirit, okay, resting, waiting for the resurrection. Like, well, well wait a minute. He believes in the resurrection. What if he was talking to somebody? What if someone did appear to him on the Damascus Road? And so it gets violent. They drag Paul away. Um, But what I want us to to notice here as we get started is this interaction with the high priest right at the beginning. Okay? So Paul gets struck. It's unjust. And Paul has no problem saying that. He says, hold up here. Y'all are assuming to be, you know, judging according to the law here when y'all are acting against the law. And he, kind of in anger, goes, you're, you're a whitewashed wall. God is going to strike you. He has no problem giving it to them. But then someone points out that Paul's talking to the high priest, and Ananias. And Paul seems to back down from what he said. He seems to slow down his rhetoric. And he says, I didn't know it was the high priest. I'm aware the scriptures say you shouldn't speak evil to a ruler of your people. Now, we don't know why Paul wouldn't have recognized the high priest. Perhaps because of how things went down, he wasn't in his full garb, okay? all of his clothing, so it wasn't recognizable. Um, we think Paul had bad eyesight, so perhaps because of Paul's eyesight, he wasn't able to see who the high priest was. There's even a chance that Paul's being sarcastic when he says, I didn't know it was the high priest. right? Like, oh, I didn't know a high priest would act like that. Um, but, but Paul gets called on this point and goes, hey, you're talking to one of the highest officials in the Jewish governing body. And, and Paul concedes the point. He says, you're right. I shouldn't talk evil of a a ruler of mine. I think you see two points here, which are going to be the two points we flesh out this morning, and we'll see them throughout these two chapters, okay? The first point is this. Christians are called to respect and submit to the governing authorities. Christians are called to uh, uh, submit and respect to the governing authorities. The second point is this. Christians are called to remind the governing authorities who the true king is. You see both of these points here in Paul. Paul has this this idea of submitting and respecting to authority. Again, we'll see this played out again and again through these two chapters. But Paul is also very quick to say, that's not right. That's not how you're supposed to be acting. This is the true king, and this is what he desires. Now, right before Paul uh, is in this situation, he writes the book of Romans. Maybe, perhaps, just a few weeks before he's here in Jerusalem um, on trial. Uh, before the, the jewish council i want us to flip to romans chapter 13 in romans 13 you get this remarkable passage where paul talks about the the governing authorities and paul seems to be following it pretty pretty closely when he uh faces it um faces the the challenge he has here in jerusalem romans 13 it's just to your right romans 13 verse 1 through 7 is the text we'll look at this morning But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed all right the the situation we think in rome was you had these horrendous tax policies at the time paul's writing this letter and you have all these rebellions going on in the city of rome against these taxes and they're saying i'm not going to pay i'm going to fight you for this all these things and paul seems to be writing the christians saying don't get caught up in that okay look pay the taxes i get it's it's overbearing i get everyone else hates this i get they're fighting against it but you be nonviolent people, okay, don't cause a scene. We're already in enough trouble as it is, as Christians, alright? Just slow down, pay the taxes, understand that God's not surprised by who's in authority. Now you've got to be really careful with how you interpret this passage, Romans thirteen, one through seven. Because there's a way that you can interpret it, and that it has been interpreted, that leaves the church without the possibility of calling the state into accountability. So this is very famously the passage that churches in Germany used to support Hitler. I mean, we cannot read Romans 13 after Hitler's regime without acknowledging that. Because they said, well, there's no authority who exists except those that God put there. So, So we've got to obey. But they missed, again, the second point, which is involved in the first one. It's included in the first one. That Caesar himself, the state himself, is still called to be accountable to Christ, to the true king. And you can't, whatever you, you, however you read Romans 13, right? You can't read it without first reading what we read in service, Romans 12. And no matter what you think Romans 13 means, it will not get you out of the obligations Paul gives you in Romans 12. To love, to overcome evil with good, those kind of things. To follow Christ and be loyal to his kingdom. That rules, that trumps everything else. I think a better way to, to read Romans 13 is in a kind of divine providence model, okay? So this is similar to how the Old Testament talks about Babylon and Assyria, these two evil, evil, evil empires. And, and the, the Old Testament scriptures say, God tells them what to do. He raises them up for his purposes. Now, when the scriptures say that, they're not morally legitimizing the evils that Babylon and Assyria did. God's people weren't supposed to go join Babylon and Assyria, right? Say, like, oh, well, I guess they're doing this. God wants us to do this. So, so we'll treat people like this. We'll wage war like this. We'll do all these things. God was simply saying, this is not a surprise to me. I'm doing exactly what I want to do in creation. I'm using these governments the way I want to use them. So submit to them. Have respect for them. Now, don't let that respect outweigh your respect for me. Don't ever get confused about who your loyalty is due to. But insofar as you can, submit and have respect. I think, again, you'll see Paul illustrating both of these points. They're both vital to grasp. That you and I are called to respect and submit to our governing authorities. And you and I are called to, as the church, bear witness to the true king. Bear witness to the one who has put them there. And for the purpose that they have been put there. So as Christians... You and I, the way that we talk about the government is very important. The way that we use rhetoric, the discourse that we use, the way that we speak about ideologies and policies and actions and all those things. And, and here's what I would say. For a Christian, you and I need to stay as far away from alarmist propaganda as possible. Those who realize that there's a true king whose reign is not about to be upset by Obama or Hitler or anyone else. Are okay being patient. And are okay respecting and submitting. I think what happens sometimes so uh if if this is this is fairly common in my experience, okay? Kind of a Christian Republican thinks Obama is like the worst thing that's ever happened, right? I mean it's, it's this horrible socialist communist you know Black, uh, black knight from radical Muslim Iraq, okay, and he's come in to destroy the country, that kind of a thing. And so, so they demonize everything about him and everything about his administration and they dehumanize him and they call him and his mission every name that they can imagine and I think that they feel a kind of false moral obligation to do so. Because again, I don't think they've really taken stock of the fact that Jesus reigns we're not called to dehumanize people. We're not called to assume the worst about people. And, and because this is Texas, I mean, we shouldn't have to say this right, but I definitely think a violent revolution is not what God's calling the church to do, okay? So if Texas ever decides to take up arms, all right, and try to succeed, we'll step back, all right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna be part of that. I think Romans 13 speaks pretty clearly to that, okay? You resist and you submit. But there is, again, this very important idea you have this prophetic Martin Luther King would say the church is the conscience of the state and this is again why it's very dangerous if you and I get tied too closely to a a party or to a government because sometimes you get tied so closely that you stop having the ability to critique even your own party even your own ideology and this is what happens I think when you see this national idolatry with with Germany so you lose the ability to say well that's not right you use the ability to critique and to call the state itself, the governor, governing authorities, into repentance, into accountability with Christ. So these, these two aspects, okay? Again, I think you're going to see them throughout uh, these two chapters. So we go back to Acts 23. Now, Paul is aware, and Acts is aware, that Rome is not this great empire, okay? Paul's not submitting to them because they do everything perfectly, and he really trusts their decision-making, right? He's submitting to people, both the Jewish council and the Roman council, whom he's aware it could go bad for him. So, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Wow. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. There's 40 guys who made a pretty serious pact. Sounds like some radical political people that I know, okay? They, uh, they make this pact to uh, not eat or drink until they kill Paul. Verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and said... We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. More exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. But luckily, there's a kid involved. All right. Verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister, okay, his nephew, little boy, heard of their ambush. So, so news travels fast in this type of world. He hears, overhears that this vow was taken. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul's like, this is very interesting. Paul calls one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. He's got something important to say. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you inform me of these things. I would love to find out what they end up doing when this plot doesn't succeed, okay? I mean, after a few days, they're like, yeah, I'm really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) This has not worked out the way we're supposed to. Our, our best guess is that it wasn't too hard for them to get, like, a legal loophole created by one of the chief priests that gets them out of this, this vow. Um, I don't think they're going to do this again, though. I think they're, they're going to learn their lesson. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, I mean, if I'm Paul, I'm not comforted that there are 40 men who have made a vow not to eat until they like, kill me. That's not a safe place to be in life. I think people upset at me, but I don't think anything like that. Verse 23. He called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So, Paul's getting the full escort, okay? This guy is going all out to protect Paul. It's kind of awesome. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Here's the letter. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Just to be real... I mean, read closely here. He's really arranged, rearranged what's actually happened under his his watch, okay? No mention of the torture that they were about to do. He makes it seem like he found out Paul's was a Roman citizen, and that's why he rescued him, when in reality, Paul disclosed that to him after he had taken him and about to torture him. Okay, this is politics as usual, right? He's telling the story in a very beneficial way to himself. Verse 31, So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on without him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So again, I mean, this is a very, very interesting scene. This group of soldiers would have been something Paul the Apostle avoided his entire ministry. This would have been a nightmare to him if someone told him, hey, in a couple of weeks, you're going to be surrounded by 200 horsemen or or 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. He'd be like, oh, no, it went really bad in Jerusalem. But what's the the, what's the government doing here? The Roman soldiers here, they're protecting the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is kind of a crazy reversal. You have this huge Roman squad, right? Sneaking Paul off to safety in the middle of the night. There's no authority instituted except those by God. He, res- he respects, he submits. Now, Paul is very much aware, it doesn't always work out well. Sometimes you submit and you get killed. It might happen to him in not too long. If you, you only have to go back to Acts chapter 12 to be confirmed with this problem. James gets killed, Peter survives. Peter gets out of jail. And we wonder then, how come James got killed and Peter survived? And we had to answer, that was the Lord's purpose. The Lord had, had more purpose for Peter. So it's not this automatic, God will always make things work out in the right way. But, but again, God's not surprised. God says, if I need to use the Roman army to do what I want to do, I'm going to use the Roman army to do what I want to do. Again, not all is perfect, right? No one's pretending for a second the Roman army and the Roman government is this perfect organization, right? Only doing justice in the world. I mean, even you have this letter here. He lies to the governor, Felix, about what's happening. But Paul submits, and Paul's going to be prepared to do the same thing to the Roman governor, Felix, that he did to the Jewish governor, which is to testify about who the true king is as he submits and as he respects the authority. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. He's in uh, Caesarea. Felix is the Roman governor of this area. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. Read, lawyer one Tertullus They laid before the governor their case against Paul And when he had been summoned Tertullus began to accuse him saying Since through you we enjoy much peace And since by your foresight Most excellent Felix Reforms are being made for this nation In every way and everywhere uh, We accept this with all gratitude Can we just say as we uh, get started on his speech Every account And every piece of evidence we have from the first century Says that this is a complete lie Okay Literally every piece of evidence we have says he was one of the worst governors Rome ever knew. Okay? I mean, you kind of get the sense. Just go back. Think of how much chaos was in Jerusalem. He was doing a horrible job governing this area. It was violent revolution after violent revolution. He apparently historically made almost no reforms, like spent no time doing anything there. He's going to be removed from the throne very shortly after this by Caesar. He's going to be like, look, you cannot keep messing this up. Okay? We've got to take you do something else with you. But truth is often a casualty in things of this nature, right? So we very much enjoy all the work you've been doing. Um, Felix actually was a slave. He was born a slave and rose up, kind of an American dream story, rose up to be the governor of uh, Judea for the Romans. And some people wrote about him and said uh, he uses power like a governor with instincts like a slave. Uh, Like he just grabs things for himself as if he's still the slave who who no one takes care of or anything like that. He uses all this power for himself. And it catches up with him eventually. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything in which we accuse him, that the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replies... Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul's a little more reserved in his opening, okay, to Felix. You can verify, he says, that there is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect... I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or any tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, lest these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial on this day. So Paul admits to one thing. He said, all right, I did cause a ruckus in the Jewish council when I mentioned the resurrection. That's on me. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way... Put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Pro tip, he's not coming. All right? Uh, Felix doesn't want to deal with this. He's going to procrastinate. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but should have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix is in a tough place, because if he doesn't do what the Jews want him to do, he's bound for another riot revolution in Jerusalem, okay? But if he mistreats a Roman citizen, that's really, really bad as well for his status as a Roman governor. So he's like, well, we'll just keep him here in prison, but we need to give him some freedom. Okay. Let him have his needs met. That kind of a thing. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in the Messiah, Jesus. So Felix starts having these conversations, very interesting with Paul. And again, what's Paul telling about the King? He's, I know you're the governor of Rome, of the Roman province of Judea, but, but, Jesus is the king. Now, Drusilla is married to Felix illegally. So, you and I have like tabloids, right? Uh, Like little magazines in the store and these sex scandals for celebrities go crazy, right? And when it sells it, hits off the press like crazy. Well, this would have been a huge one in the first century. Any first century reader immediately would have gone, "Uh uh-oh, Felix and Drusilla. She's a Jewish woman. She's actually related to the emperor. And Felix illegally marries her. It was a big to-do, okay, in the ancient world. People were really upset about it. And you've got to imagine Paul's talking to him, perhaps, about his marriage to Jerusalem and maybe about his governing of the uh, Judea area. In verse 25, he reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. All things Felix probably needed to hear about. And Felix was, what, alarmed. <laughs> so Felix understood that he was being confronted about some of this stuff. This seems very familiar to John the Baptist and Herod. When John the Baptist speaks out against Herod's sexual morality in public, Herod's interested by it, ends up killing him for it. Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. That's the real reason he's keeping him here. Okay, he wants the bribe. He wants money. He, he's heard Paul brought a lot of money to Jerusalem. So he's able to organize this transfer of money. Maybe he'll have a friend who comes and gets him out. Um, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. (sighs) All right. We've read the two chapters. Paul ends up stuck here in red tape for two years. He's got this vision that he's going to Rome. Imagine two years in this weird, in-prison situation. A lot of people think this is actually the time period Luke wrote his gospel. Luke's been traveling with Paul, and now he has some unforeseen free time. (laughs) Two years to perhaps go travel, interview people, get the sources he needs to start writing his gospel. And Paul's stuck here for, for two years. And Paul's not willing to, uh, to bribe his way out of the situation. And he's going he's gonna to respect and submit to the authorities. Again, Paul looks very clear about this throughout the whole book of Acts. Paul is never guilty of any charge against him. He's constantly submitted to the authorities. He's respected them. He's not guilty of trying to start this violent revolution or insurrection movement. What Paul is guilty of is proclaiming Christ. And the authorities are correct in realizing that that means their world will be changed. Paul's calling people to convert. Paul's calling people to to give their allegiance to Jesus. And as we've seen, that does mean economic changes. It does mean political changes. It does mean religious changes. The authorities are rightly threatened by that and wrongly accuse him of starting up these, these revolutions. Notice again, Paul submits. He doesn't call for him and his friends to come violently to break him out of jail. He's not willing to morally get out of prison. He submits, he respects, he has these conversations with Felix. But again, notice he's constantly reminding Felix, there's, there's a Christ, there's a king. He started this thing, the kingdom of God on earth. You're on the wrong side of it right now. <laughs> So I would suggest you think some things through about self-control and judgment and the way you're governing. We have these I think two principles for you and I as we engage with our elected leaders. I think we've got to recover the sense of Jesus as our true king, a real king with real implications for here and now. And that we we've got to show respect to our authorities. I mean, there's just, there's really no place for the type of language I've heard some Christians put toward Obama. There's just no place for it in Christian discourse. And there's no place for for what I heard some people saying about Mitt Romney before he lost the election. I mean, there's just this sense there that, that we don't really understand that we have a true king. I mean, the world's not hinging, right? You're placing way too much hope, good or bad. Way too much power in these people. America doesn't have the ability to elect the Antichrist or the Savior Presents come and go. Jesus reigns, though. And, and we do have to continue as the church to keep this prophetic stance to the governing authorities. We remind them who truly is king. Sometimes that takes the form of, of verbalization. When we say, we point out, we speak up for those who are, are being oppressed. Oftentimes, I think the, the most effective way that you and I do this is by modeling It's by showing the governing authorities and the world around us, what it looks like when the kingdom of God is on earth as it is in heaven. I'm reminded of a a quote that, that I I just think is really deep and and powerful. Stanley Howard says the church doesn't have an alternative politics to offer to the world. The church is an alternative politics. I mean, the church doesn't have some master plan for figuring out the American economy. The church instead can say, look at our group of people and look at how all of our needs are taken care of because we're willing to sacrifice not because we have legislation in place, the right laws, but because we love the one who gave up his life for us. If you'd like that, you can follow him as well. And the church doesn't have some master plan for figuring out abortion. Right? I mean, I'm on, I'm on the same page. Abortion is wrong. I don't think, though, legislating it is going to do the things that some people think it's going to do. I think you've, it's such a complex issue. But what I can do as a Christian is say, I, I don't have the plan for you there. But let me show you a group of people who would rather adopt babies than see them be killed. An alternative. As she said, a city on a hill. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God's on earth as it is in heaven. And when we live that kind of way, when we forgive each other, when we love each other, when we live lives of sacrifice and peace and joy and justice, it's a sign that, that there's a new power in town. And look at what life looks like under Him, and all are called to find their life in Him, and all are put on notice that this is the life that will last. This life will crumble in on itself sooner than later. That's the that's the that's the world. That's the community that you and I are called to live in. That voice that echoes in my heart and my soul, that voice of a world that's made right, a world where justice reigns. That's a real voice. And I do believe it's come close to us in Jesus. You and I are called to pursue it. We're called to amplify it. We're called to say it with our own lips to the world around us. And perhaps the call as we see in Acts is to model it with patient, sometimes suffering, sacrificial life. As we both respect the ones who are in authority above us and also make sure They're aware there's a true king. And this is what his kingdom looks like. You've got to be very careful that in politics, Christians aren't trying to substitute the president for Jesus. That we're instead trying to convert. There's a big difference, a world of difference. I think sometimes people just think if we could, again, have Jesus doing what Obama's doing right now, putting laws forth, having a military, those kind of things. Like I said in November, I don't think Jesus is interested in being the president of the United States. I don't think he was interested in being Caesar, I don't think that's why Paul's not going around campaigning for him to become Caesar, right? Jesus has a throne. I think he's got the best one, a pretty good one, the right hand of the Father. It's a different kind of throne, a different kind of kingdom. It goes forth in a different way. We're not simply trying to substitute laws or military. We're trying to convert imaginations and hearts and loyalties to the true king, the crucified and risen one. And so we respect again, and, and I think we, we remind We live out a sign that he's in charge, that this is what his kingdom looks like as we go forth in obedience and faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, your kingdom. We thank you for the work uh, that Jesus has done and has continued to do as Acts begins, the things that Jesus continued to do in his world through his church. We pray that you would use us much like you use the disciples. We pray that, that if individually our in a situation like, like Paul was that we would both be able to model this submission to the authorities and also this, this ultimate loyalty to, to Christ and his kingdom we pray that the church as a community would be the shining light to who God is and, and what he's begun and is doing in Christ and through the church we pray that for situations like this weekend in New Orleans we pray that your justice would shine forth we pray that you would use us the church as you see fit to further your kingdom on earth we pray that we never lose sight of that call we pray that we wouldn't overemphasize our afterlives to the detriment of following you here now and pouring forth all of our energy and effort into seeing your kingdom come into joining christ on this mission through the power of the spirit we pray that you'd be with us and that you would allow us to go out into our everyday lives in much smaller situations and work for justice and work for your kingdom, and our workplaces, and our families, and our neighborhoods. That we wouldn't be paralyzed by these big problems to the point where we, we forget about the small things that we can do to bring heaven to earth in our daily situations. We love you, and we ask for your grace. And it's in your son's precious name, that all God's people said, Amen.